Greetings. I trust that the Feast of Tabernacles is going well for you and for your families. Let's begin in Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah chapter 11, we read a, a millennial picture. We read in, in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 11, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. And then in verse 6 we read about this picture of the, of the millennium. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together. And the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So we read of this beautiful millennial picture, what it will be like in, in the world tomorrow, the world ahead. But how do we get there from here? Here we are today, coming, really coming out of a time of national prosperity. Uh, we see as we look to, to, to one, toward one shore and, and on beyond to, toward Europe, we see the EU gaining on us economically and rising in terms of, of stature in the Middle East and around the world. We see China on the, off the other coast uh, gaining dominance in the world scene, both economically and even in terms of their military and political uh, power. Uh, we see problems in North Korea. We see problems in the, in the Middle East. And we have a sneaking suspicion as a nation that we've gotten ourselves into a quagmire in, in Iraq. The national mood today is more a mood of, of uncertainty for what the future holds. It's not the best it's ever been. And it's almost as if we, as a nation, we, we see the storm clouds on the horizon, and we know that we've been strong as a nation, and, and we're hoping that the house that we've, that we've made won't fall down. And, and the nations that we do try to lead... They all point the finger at us all too often, and, and they say, who are you to teach us about morality? Uh, who are you to talk about human rights? You realize that, that, in our pop, that we lead, actually, the world in terms of, of incarceration. Uh, we have, in our country, one out of 136 uh, people, citizens in our country, is, is in the correctional uh, system. Uh, actually, as of 2006, 7 million people were either in, in jail or on parole or, or probation. 2.2 million people in 2006 were actually in, incarcerated. And uh, we lead the world. We have more people incarcerated than, than China, than in Russia. And so with 25, actually with less than that, with 5% of the world's population, we have 25% of the world's incarcerated people. And so the world looks at us and says, who are you to talk to us about human rights or about, about a, a, a civil authority and what's right in terms of your people when uh, this high percentage of your people live in a jail cell? Uh, try as we may, we can't seem to get an optimistic attitude as, as, a, as a nation here in the United States. And, of course, around the world, people look and watch and see what, 
what's happening in the United States and are not, are not positive and pleased. Now, in God's church, we've been through a lot in the last 20 years. And we can't help but wonder sometimes what will happen next. Where will things be next year or the year after in terms of God's church and His work and what's happening around? Why is there so much confusion? Why are there so many different voices claiming to cry out in the wilderness of religious confusion? Uh, it can get confusing at times. Uh, we can't seem to get away from the same uncertainty in, in the air facing us as a church. Uh, maybe a few anxious thoughts uh, that we have in the world at large. And sometimes that perfect picture of the millennium can seem very, 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 very far away. Uh, but we know and we have faith that this is where our future lies. Uh, the perfect picture of God's kingdom on earth is going to be a wonderful place. It's going to be a wonderful time. But how do we get there from here? How do we get there with our uncertainty in our nation, sometimes even in terms of, of the church and seeing what's happening around with different people going to different directions, with our uncertainty, with our anxious thoughts? How do we get there from here? God gives us the answer, He gives us the direction, and He gives us the help through the Feast of Tabernacles. And I'd like to take the time during this, this hour to, to show you how. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23 to begin. Leviticus chapter 23, of course, we know that we have the, the, the commands regarding the holy days. And as we come down to verse 33, we read about the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 33, we read, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles, for seven days to the Lord. So we read here of the introduction to the Feast of Tabernacles, and we read on more explanation of what the Feast of Tabernacles is all about. Verse 35, we read, On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. And then for seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It's a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord. Verse 37, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything on its day, besides the Sabbath of the, Sabbath of the Lord, besides your gifts, and, and so on. So we, as we begin to read about the Feast of Tabernacles, what we see uh, first, first off, as it, as it begins to explain the Feast of Tabernacles, the first thing that's brought to our attention is that this is a time of convocation, of gathering together. In fact, even of traveling to, to come together. Uh, not just to uh, worship at a holy shrine or an appointed place just because. But the whole idea is travel, to gather together to a place, to be with others, to convocate, to assemble with others. Let's go over to Nehemiah chapter 8. It's, it's always interesting to, to read about people in the Bible who have actually... Uh, who've actually obeyed God's commands. Uh, sometimes we read an awful lot about those who haven't obeyed God's commands and, and, and the result. But we also read about people who obey God's commands and, and the result of that in a very positive way. In Nehemiah chapter 8. If you turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. And we read here of, of a time when people kept the, the Feast of Tabernacles. 
We, we begin here in verse, I'm going to, going to break into the, the, the whole account here in, the, in, verse, in the verse 13. We read, on the second day, the, actually I should back up to earlier in the chapter. Let's go back to uh, the first part of the chapter, verse 1, and then even a few words before. We read, when the seventh month came, this is the last uh, verse of chapter 7, when the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. And then it talks about how they gathered together. Of course, this is the fall festival season. How they gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. And, and you can read about about how then they read distinctly from the law of God and they gave them the sense and the understanding of what it was all about. But coming down to verse 13 again then, we read that on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. In other words, they should live, they should make these booths, they should spend time together, live t- together, and, uh, and do it in a certain way. He says, verse 15, And that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountains, mountains and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Don't stay in your normal places. Don't stay in your house with your own families only. Uh, but no, this is going to be a different time where you're going to do something different. And that was to, to learn to build booths, to gather together, to spend time with, with other people. So we see verse, verse 16, uh, the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or in the, in the court, courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and the open square of the gate of Ephraim. And verse 17, so the whole assembly of those who returned from the captivity made booths and they sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. Verse 18, and also day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. So we read here how the people were given, a, a, you might say, a mechanism where they would go stop their normal daily lives and build booths, spend time with each other. In fact, we find oftentimes, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 18, that also involved, not oftentimes, but all the time, it involved, it involved eating, it involved sharing meals together. Deuteronomy chapter 14, Deuteronomy chapter 14. You know, when you think about the, the Feast of Tabernacles, I think that perhaps we don't appreciate enough what a blessing it is to have this time, this feast, this mechanism that, that brings us together to foster bonds of brotherhood between us. And the Feast of Tabernacles, and if you want to write down the first point, the first point is the Feast of Tabernacles as part of God's plan to, to bring us forward into the future, to encourage us and strengthen us and help us on that, on that journey towards, towards the future. The Feast of Tabernacles, number one, helps us to build bonds of brotherhood. The Feast of Tabernacles is partly a mechanism to, to, to do that, to draw us together, to gather us together. Uh, when we keep the Feast of, if we keep the Feast of Tabernacles by simply staying in our own houses and, and reading the Bible, and we're not going to get the, the benefit of the Feast of Tabernacles that was intended. But God says, gather together, spend time together, refresh those bonds of brotherhood, uh, spend time eating and fellowshipping together. Deuteronomy chapter 14 
We read here how, how food enhances fellowship, and we know it does. When we break bread together, when we have, we have meals together, it, it, it actually adds to that, the fellowship. And uh, it facilitates the fellowship. It's part of, of, of fellowship. Deuteronomy chapter 14, we read about, here verse 22, You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where He chooses to make His name abide. Uh, not just wherever we want to, or just sitting back in, a, in our homes. And I realize that there are those who aren't able to travel to the feast because of, of health or distance or age, uh, what have you. But uh, that's the exception. We, when we do keep the command and we gather together, there are benefits that are accrued. We, we rehearse and we, we, we refresh those bonds of, of brotherhood, like, like synapses in our brain. Our brain works with, uh, with different connections. And the more we, we connect the different uh, synapses in our brain, the more we remember things, the more that we're able to, to have, have a familiarity with, 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 with things. And I know uh, for, for my family and for me, when we gather together at the feast, we see, oftentimes, we see people that we haven't seen in a long time. And, and what a wonderful thing that is to be able to see people that you haven't seen in a year, two years, three years, sometimes more. This last year at the Feast of Tabernacles, I uh, ran into, actually, I was, as I was speaking, I looked in the audience and uh, I noticed a person that I hadn't seen in perhaps 20 years. And, and what a wonderful thing it was. As I looked down and I saw this person, it brought back memories of years before and time that we'd, that we'd worked together. And in this case, I'd seen his example uh, at Pasadena of, of the fine work that he had done and, and, and for so many students, how he had helped and how he'd encouraged and been a good example. And, and seeing him uh, for the first time in many, many years, just it refreshed the, the, the bonds that, I, that I, I had years ago with this, with this gentleman. And uh, what, what a wonderful thing it was. And I was able to talk with him. We spent time together. It was just, a, just a, a wonderful thing. The feast facilitates that. Without the feast, the opportunity wouldn't have presented itself. Well, that happens all across. We all know that. It's almost like a family reunion. And, and, and I guess in the greatest sense, it is a family reunion of God's family. But the Feast of Tabernacles, again, is the mechanism that provides us that opportunity. Other churches of the world don't have, have uh, something like this. Uh, not to this degree in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but we do, because God commands us to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it helps to build those bonds and refresh those bonds of brotherhood that are so important to us. Deuteronomy chapter 14, again, as we continue... He says, uh, verse 23, Eat before the Lord your God in the place where He chooses to make His name abide, the tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil, the firstborn of your herds and your flocks, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. But if the journey is too long for you, so that you're not able to carry the tithe, or if the place the Lord your God chooses to put His name is too far from you, when the Lord your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it for, for money. Take the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. And you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink, for whatever your heart desires. You shall eat there before the Lord your God. He shall rejoice you and your household. So what a blessing this, this, this is. And those, uh, those who are not able to be at the Feast of Tabernacles, again, it's, in, it's incumbent upon, upon those who are to reach out and, and encourage those. Take that as a special time. I know we were able to, to do this uh, at the Feast last year to reach out to some of you who aren't able to be at the Feast and aren't able to experience it firsthand. It's incumbent upon us to reach out and, and, and be able to share some of that brotherhood with those of you who are, who are at home. 
And, um, and that's, that's important. And I hope that you will remember that you aren't alone and that it will be a, a, a time when you can, uh, you can in, in, even through long distance, uh, you can be able to, to refresh those bonds of, of, of brotherhood. And that's what the feast is all about. It's a time where we give special attention to those bonds of, of brotherhood. And he talks about not forsaking the Levite or the, or the, the who is within your gates, he says, and, and, and so on. But he says, verse 26, I'm, uh, I'm looking here, You shall spend that money for whatever your heart your desires, for oxen, sheep, wine, sim- or similar drink, whatever your heart desires, and you eat it there before the Lord your God, and rejoice, you, your household. Take that time together. Take that time with, with others. The more we... We spend time together, and I hope that we can take this, this principle and this, what we learn, this, this, this exercise that we do at the feast, and we can, we can uh, take that back home with us and, and take time to, to build those bonds of brotherhood uh, back in our home church areas, uh, wherever we may be. So we can, be, be used, we can continue to encourage those bonds of brotherhood throughout the year. We need those. Building those bonds of brotherhood, it builds confidence in each other. It builds trust. It builds understanding. We need the emotional support from each other. Uh, we need the stability that's built from knowing each other, spending time with each other, and, um, and, and re- refreshing that family relation. You know, we need each other today, but we, we're also going to need each other as time goes by. I want to turn to Revelation chapter 12, because <clears throat> these are not... Building these and refreshing these bonds of brotherhood is not simply uh, something that helps us today without any, without any regard for the future. But Revelation chapter 12, we read about a time in the future that we're going to have to rely on each other. We're going to have to have confidence in each other as certainly first and foremost in, in, in God and in His direction. But God uses people. God works through people. And He needs us to help and have confidence in, in each other and trust each other. And, and respect and look to, to each other for, for support and for help and strength. And, and that goes the other way as well. We need to be a, a, a strength and a, and a confidence builder for other, other people. Revelation chapter 12 talks about a time where persecution is going to come on God's church. And we, we read in Revelation chapter 12, for example, verse 13, about the, the dragon, uh, Satan the devil, who saw that he had been cast to the earth. It says he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And certainly we like to be able to be part of those who are protected, as, it, as we read in verse 14 and 15 and so on. But it does begin with a time of persecution. Can we trust in each other? Can we, can we strengthen each other? Can we be counted on uh, uh, among ourselves in God's church, in God's family? I would hope so. And, and we only fool ourselves if we can be right with God and, and not be connected to our brethren. We need each other. And it's important we build those bonds of brotherhood. The Feast of Tabernacles is a time that helps us and that moves us forward. Let's move on to a second point. Let's go back to Revelation, or Leviticus chapter, chapter 23, rather. Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23, we were, we were reading about the Feast of Tabernacles. And we read here, verse. let's begin in verse 39. Let's pick up the... The thread here. Also, on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you gathered gather in the fruit of the land, for you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. Verse, we see for ancient Israel, 
as we read verse 39, for example, uh, we can see that this was uh, the feast of the great harvest, the fall harvest. Uh, it was a time to, to rejoice that the hard work was done. Uh, the work uh, of the sweating and the toiling, the work of planting, and then caring for the plants, and, and then ultimately uh, not only keeping them well watered and fertilizing and, and weeding and all the things that are part of, of caring for, for, for plants and vegetables and trees and, and, and grain and all that. Uh, there's a time that comes when all that work is, is then finished with a great harvest and then you can breathe a sigh of relief. You can breathe, bring a great, breathe a, a great sigh of relief. In our, in our day and age, most of us don't work on an agricultural cycle. Uh, most of us, the cycle continues day in, day out throughout, throughout the year. Um, but in an agricultural cycle, there's a time when the harvest is done and you can be able to, to relax to a certain degree and look back on the harvest with a satisfaction. You can be appreciative of the blessing of the harvest. Uh, we, were, we spent many years in, in Thailand where we, with our, our brethren in the northeast part of the country, we, uh, would, help them, we would help them with the rice harvest. And when the, they would actually harvest it with a sickle, and and when the harvest was done, all the hard work was done. It was it was a time to relax, and and to enjoy now the stacks of of the 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 rice stalks, and you have to beat them and thresh them and so on. But it, it was a time to look in the fields, and all the work was done, and it was a, a it was a pleasant time. You could breathe a deep a, a sigh of relief. So for the Israelites, they lived in an agricultural setting, and this was a time for them to be able to, to rejoice that the harvest was through, was done, it was plenteous, and uh, it was very, very special for those reasons. But there was, a, there was an added, added point to it. It wasn't just a harvest festival. Uh, we, as we read on, we see. He says, verse, verse 40, And you shall take for yourselves... On the first day, the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, the boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. It goes on, verse, we read, talked about this in terms of the, the building of the booths. He says, verse 41, you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. He says, it shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Verse 42 he says, you shall dwell in booths, again, for, for seven days. Something different from their ordinary life now. He says, all who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. Verse 43, that your generations... Now, here comes the, the point here. He says, verse 43, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. You see, the Feast of Tabernacles was not... Only, again, a, a time to reflect on the harvest that was, that was current of that year. But it was a time to reflect on the past. God's holy days for Israel were memorials. God's holy days look back on the time that Israel had been brought from Egypt, had been, had been brought out of slavery, out of captivity. And it, they memorialized those very special times in Israel's history, now, very, those, the, the, the days of that, of that emancipation, that, that coming out of slavery, that, that were a time in history. So God, God gave His holy days to Israel, for, for, in one part, as memorials. But wrapped in those memorials for all the holy days were, were messages about the future. They looked past 
They looked at the, at the, at the distant past, you might say. They looked at the, the current harvest and the, what had just happened. But wrapped within, those, within that package, you might say, within those, those celebrations, was a, a look and a message about the future. You know, for ancient Israel, as they left Egypt and as they, as they went into Canaan, they entered into their rest. They entered into their rest. Let's go to Hebrews chapter, chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And we have a, a section here of Scripture that, that uses, that, that looks to the past and the exodus and the time when they were, they were going into Canaan and draws lessons and points toward actually the future. We see here uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering His rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, whose them was, is talking about, is pointing to, remind, looking back at the ancient Israelites, because that's, that was the first time where they were going to enter into a rest. They were pointed to a, a, a rest, the land of Canaan, the land of, of milk and honey. He says, For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he said, So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. He's taking it from the past, and he's giving us pointers about, about the future here. He says, For he has spoken in a certain day, a place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. That same theme of a rest that God established from the beginning with the Sabbath day, being a day of rest. But then that theme was, was continued, that, that thread throughout human history with Israel entering their rest. And ultimately what we read here of a future rest. He says, Verse 5, and again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Some didn't. Those who died in the wilderness didn't enter into that rest. He says, verse uh, 6, since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter it because of disobedience. And again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, today, after such a long time, as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, for if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. Verse 9, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. There remains a rest for us. That seventh, that seventh day, you might say, of human history, which is the millennium that we talk about and we point to. And in fact, point number two is the Feast of Tabernacles then helps us to focus on the future. It helps us to focus on the future. Get our mind on the future. We talk about the future. We think about the future during the Feast of Tabernacles. And there's a, a, God built a mechanism that, was, that looked back on a, a point in time in history, looked on the harvest, but it also pointed towards, towards the future. He says, again, verse 9, there, 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 there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Verse 10, For he who has entered his rest has himself also seized from his works as God did from his. Ultimately, we will cease from the, the battle of, of our, our own human nature and against Satan the devil and the world around us. We'll, we'll ultimately be finished with that battle when we are able to enter into God's family, when we'll be able to, to help rebuild this world. Let's just remember what things will be like at that future time. You know, most of us have, have not had to, had to face it, 
but we can watch on the news. Uh, we may not have had to face it uh, personally, uh, but we can watch on the news and read in the newspaper, watch on the Internet if you, if you get your news via the, the Internet. And, and you can see some, you can just get a picture. And that's, for us, uh, often, uh, generally speaking, that's all it is, is a, is a picture of, of the suffering that happens in our world today. Uh, but that picture barely does it justice. Uh, some of you have been able to travel. Some of you, perhaps through serving in the military in years gone by or, or traveling, have been able to see firsthand uh, a picture of the blessings that we have in our, in our country and, and the, the suffering that goes on in most of the world. Uh, places like uh, Somalia, Bangladesh, uh, throughout every corner of the world, Maybe more, maybe more recently, we, we got just a bit of a taste of it here in the United States, in New Orleans. You know, those things, that the suffering that goes on throughout the world, throughout most of the world, is real. It's not just a picture. We have an image of it that we, that we can see on TV or on the Internet or in a magazine. But it's real. And those people hurt. Those people suffer. Uh, what happened in, in New Orleans with the, the hurricane in New Orleans brought suffering. Uh, I was, I, I've lived in Louisiana for seven years and uh, was not there when the, when the, the, the hurricane uh, hit, but not too long after that, uh, my wife and I were, and I were able, able to travel down and, and visit with, with friends there, and while we were there, we, we saw some of the devastation that occurred, and I was flabbergasted because mile after mile was just devastation. It looked literally like a bomb had been dropped on the city. And, and as you go neighborhood after neighborhood where there's nobody there and all there is is, is destruction, neighborhood, and you drive mile after mile after mile, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. But that's only a taste. That, that's only a, a, a taste of what will ultimately envelop the whole world because it's going to get worse before it gets better. We know that. Let's go to Revelation chapter, chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. We read some of the things that are going to that are going to envelop the earth, and it's not going to just, going to just be other countries, other places, pictures that we can see on the TV screen, and and then perhaps uh, uh, we can have an appeal for for sending a, a dollar or five dollars or ten dollars or whatever it may be to help out in a particular cause, and then we can go back to uh, flipping the channel and watching another program. Or we can go back to our daily life, and we can go uh, pretty much uh, most people, even as our economy slips in our country, uh, most people can be able to have food on the table and a roof over their heads. Um, we go back to our daily life, and we can put it out of our minds. But it's not going to be like that forever. Uh, a time is going to come when we're going to be experiencing, as a, as a nation, as a, pe- as a people, uh, all of what we read here in, in Revelation 6. He says... We read here first in verses 1 and 2 about the religious, uh, uh, religious domination of this great false system that will be, will be upon the world in verses 1 and 2. And then we go to verse 3. We read here about uh, verse 3. Let's read it. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. And another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. There's a lot that's packed into that sentence. There will not be peace on the earth. You know that right now, we live in a time where, for us, generally speaking, there is, there is peace. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning the statistics in terms of, of crime in our nation. 
but most people don't worry that their house is going to be uh, overnight is going to be uh, destroyed or going to be broken into in our country. We don't have to have uh, extreme concerns about our, our safety as much of the world does where there is strife. But uh, the point I wanted to make is, you know, today there's a lot of strife that goes on uh, in the world around us. You look at uh, some of the articles that talk and some of the descriptions of, of the wars here and civil strife here and, and around the world, there's a lot of conflict. But that's nothing compared to when, as it says right here, it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. It will, will there be nowhere where you can turn where there'll be, there'll be peace? Well, it says peace will be taken from the earth. Uh, the, the, the population of this world will suffer under, under war and strife and violence. We read that in the days before, before Noah, the days before the flood, that the world was filled with violence. And that's going to happen again. We see here verse Verse uh, 4, it was granted to the one again who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that people should kill one another and there was given to him a great sword. This will be a prevalent part of the atmosphere around the world. Fighting peace, strife, fighting lack of peace and strife and killing and violence. Verse 5, then he opened the third seal. He says, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold a black horse and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. So, so we read here about famine that will overtake the world. And all too often, in fact, if you, look at, if you study a history of wars, and, and you study famine and disease, you see that these, these, these fit together. War brings about destruction of, of property and, and of, of agriculture. Oftentimes famine then goes hand in glove. Uh, so, and this is what's going to happen in the, in the future. Then we read here, verse, verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. It just keeps getting worse. As we read this, this, this picture that's painted, of the future, it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. We're getting an advanced picture of what the world will be like at, at a point in time in the, in the future. He goes on and he talks further. We read here in verse 12 of, of Revelation chapter 6. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood. I don't know if you've, you've seen any of the articles or the research, but we do live in a, in a world, even in terms of geology, that is, uh, that is not stable. Uh, it's unstable. You can uh, read about the Yellowstone cauldron. That There are all kinds of models as to what would happen. And it is, apparently is becoming more active and is due for some, uh, some huge explosion. And some of the, the models that are, 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 are made concerning what would happen if the Yellowstone cauldron explodes uh, are horrific. The impact upon the United States and, and further is horrific. You read now about the Canary Islands and how there's a volcano as part of one of the Canary Islands that is 
uh, is predicted by some within some period of, of, a, of a, a short distance of time, and they don't, obviously don't know for sure. There's no way they can. But when you read about the potential of what would happen if this island would, uh, this volcano would become more, and it is apparently, I'm, I'm told, is becoming more active, and, and, um, but if it would explode, uh, what would happen? Uh, some coastlines that, whether you go north, south, east, and, and west, um, actually would be more the north, west, and, and, and south, uh, may experience in the models 300-foot-high tidal waves. What does that do to a coastline, to cities? A lot of our coasts, our, our cities on the, in the United States are on the eastern seaboard. And if they had even half that much or a tenth of that much of, of water would, would disrupt cities in a way that we can't even begin to imagine. Uh, we see, of course, in, in Indonesia, uh, the area of Indonesia and the, the rift that uh, goes through that, that area, if that would explode again, that would have more, more activity. Uh, who knows what tsunamis would, would, uh, what, would, what damage they would do. But we see a picture right here that talks about a time when these elements of the earth are unstable and are breaking up and are, dis are, are creating destruction that goes throughout the earth on top of the things that we've already read. This is the world, the picture that's painted of a world that is, is, in, our, is our, in our future, uh, not too many years in, into the future. Verse 13, the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place. Time of, of great volcanic activity and uh, perhaps meteors and, and all kinds of things happening to our atmosphere. Here's the point. Here's the point. Our world will not look like it does now. The, the time is coming when our world will not look like it does now. Our world will be a, a New Orleans on a grand scale. Uh, what damage does war do? What happens when bombs drop and explosions is destroy, when roads are wrecked, when plumbing, when electricity, when water supplies, when all that is gone? What happens? What happens? What kind of suffering is brought on? We can only begin to imagine. But out of that, we'll see a different world emerge. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 47. Ezekiel 47 on past that time, and that's why we, we have the Feast of Tabernacles, that points us and gives us hope beyond the, the suffering of today and even the suffering of tomorrow. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 47, we read about a time when the earth's waters and the environment will be, will be healed. We read verse 40, chapter 47, verse 1. He brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold. This vision of, a, of, of, of the future and a restoration and a healing of the, of the waters and even agric agricultural trees of, of the earth. He says, verse 1 again, He brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the front of the temple faced east, the water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. And, and we see as as you read through this description, that there was water, verse 2, running out on the right side. And when the man went out to, to the east with a line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits. So as this water flows out from the, from the, the, the temple here, verse 3, 
it becomes verse uh, three. It says, "He brought me to the water. The water came up to my ankles. It becomes deeper as as you go." Again, he measured a thousand, and he brought me through the waters. The waters came up. The water came up to my knees. And again, he measured one thousand and brought me through. The water came up to my waist. Again, he measured one thousand, and it was a river that I could not cross, for the water was too deep. Water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? He brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. And when I returned along the bank of the river were very many trees. It's not just the waters that are healed, but it's the trees. There were very many trees on one side and the other. And then he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley, and, and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. And it shall be that every living thing that moves... Wherever the rivers go, will live. So it goes on from the, the water itself to the trees to the, the life that's in the, the river, the, the, the fish and the vegetation. It says, uh, verse, uh, verse 9, There will be very great multitude of fish because these waters go there, for they will be healed, and everything will live wherever the river goes. And it shall be that fishermen will stand by it from, the, from Engedi to Enegleam, and there will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be of the same kinds of the, as, of, as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many. But its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They'll be given over to salt. In other words, they will be, as, as you, you look along at some of our, our, our seaboard areas, and they need swamps. They need areas uh, that can be estuaries for, for water that will prevent erosion and a certain type of, of wildlife and, and uh, 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 water, aquatic life, needs those estuaries to, to, to grow. That'll all be part of the, the ecosystem ecosystem that is that is rebuilt verse 12 along the bank of the river on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail they will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine so we read of a time where a different world will begin emerging on past the the suffering that uh, is is closer to us what other miracles will Will we be allowed to work in terms of, of our environment, our agriculture, our, uh, the world around us? Uh, what things will be, able, will be done instantly? What will take time? What will we be able to, 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 take, uh, to, to institute over a period of, of days, months, weeks, even years in, in restoring the earth? We read in Isaiah chapter 35, Isaiah 35 about deserts blooming, waste places blooming. Isaiah 35, and you can read here throughout the chapter, verse 1, The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. We see of a time when the deserts will blossom. And we can have a part in that. We'll be able to, to have a hand in the restoration of, of the earth. I heard a story a long time ago about, it was called The Man Who Planted Trees. And since then I've read that actually it was a, a story that was, uh, was, was, was written that was actually not accurate, but was written by a man who, who wanted to encourage the planting of trees. And he told an imaginary story, sort of like the Johnny Appleseed of, of the, uh, of, of, the, of the Alps in a way, uh, but of a man who planted trees over the years, little by little planted trees over the mountainside. Uh, but that's not, that doesn't have to be imaginary. 
And I know even people myself who I, I know who, who, in, who are involved in agriculture and restoring uh, areas, reforesting areas, even today. And that's, their, that's their, work, their life's work, and that's the effort they're putting, they're putting, putting forth to try to improve their environment and, and more power to them. It's a wonderful thing. I think it's a great effort on their part. Unfortunately, we know that it's going to be short-lived. But we'll be able to have a part in, again, a, a real story, a real-life a real event and, and an event that lasts throughout a thousand years of restoring the agriculture of this, of this earth. Uh, what, what a wonderful thing. If you, know, if you think back, you, can, you look at human history, and you see that, that the, the environment of the earth started out at, let's say, year zero in terms of human history with the Garden of Eden. It started out beautiful. And it started out with, the, with, with uh, all kinds of different plants and this beautiful garden and beautiful uh, 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 agriculture and there, uh, from Eden and, and, and so on. But as time goes on, you see that by the time of the flood, then there came destruction. And mankind, of course, participated in destruction by going away from God's, uh, God's instructions and ways. And from year, let's say in human history, 1,000 to 6,000, we've seen uh, man's destructive bent to the point where we've gotten uh, to a place today where we're concerned about, and there's all kinds of debate on, on where our environment will go and, and how our environment will, environment will last. And people can debate back and forth all day long and, and uh, on and on and on. But you can't argue that we, we're losing species at an incredible rate. We have vast deforestation. We have pollution. We have all these problems. Those, those can't be argued with that we have had an impact on our environment that is, uh, that is uh, horrific in many ways. And the fact that we would even consider whether we'll be able to sustain life on this earth uh, means we're in a scary, a scary place. But we see from year, let's say, 6,000, as the millennium begins to the 1,000 years down the line, we see a time where we'll go back to the starting point, where we'll go back to a, a, an earth that will be an Eden that will spread throughout the earth. We go back to the, the perfection in which it was originally uh, made. Ezekiel chapter 48 I like to think about, about cities and building cities and building in environments and building uh, systems for how cities will, will function. And Ezekiel 48, we read of, of, of something that I think is, is especially, uh, especially interesting that I'd, I would like to, if I have an opportunity to plan cities and be involved in, in working with cities, something that's very exciting to me, we see here that there will be, for example, in cities, we won't have urban... Uh, urban sprawl with simply houses upon houses and buildings and concrete jungles. Concrete jungles will not be the, the theme of cities in the, in the millennium. But you see that there will be, there'll be areas where there will be green belts throughout cities. I think people should be able to walk to their workplace. If they don't work around their, their home, uh, they should be able to walk and enjoy uh, nature. They should be able to enjoy the, the streams and trees as they go to their workplaces. And I know even some cities, uh, frankly, in New York City, uh, I don't know, I haven't studied the history of Central Park, but it's, it's a great uh, act of foresight for the planners to have the Central Park because it does give a, you might say, a lung within New York City where people can go and be able to enjoy uh, green. They can enjoy trees and grass, and it's, and it's a good thing. Um, but, of course, as you go out from there, it, can get, it, gets, it gets only worse in terms of some of the, uh, the, the concrete jungle. But in the millennium, we read here 
For example, verse, uh, verse 17, The common land of the city shall be to the north 250 cubits, to the south 250, to the east 250, and to the west 250. There'll be, there'll be common uh, lands within the city that will be for everybody to, en- to enjoy. Uh, the rest of the length alongside the district of the holy section shall be 10,000 cubits to the east and 10,000 to the west. It shall be adjacent to the district of the holy section and its produce. So this is, this is, this is land that will be productive. There will be gardens. People will be able to, to grow fruits and vegetables in, in this land if, if they wish. Its produce shall be food for the workers of the city. And the workers of the city from all the tribes of Israel shall cultivate it. And it talks more about, about, about cities. And it's, a, it's an exciting thing to study and think about the future in terms of cities and city planning and um, community planning. <clears throat> there will be, in fact, if we look back at a chapter here, that wealth will not be based upon ownership of capital, and capital won't be accumulated for generation, from generation to generation to generation, where those, uh, some segment of the population will have this uh, <coughs> unbelievably vast amount of capital that would be accumulated so that they uh, literally have no, need no purpose in life in terms of their work, uh, and others suffer in poverty. That won't be the way of, of the millennium. Uh, in, in a millennium, we'll go to a system where, let's say, wealth, let's say uh, uh, prosperity, will be based on, not on capital, but on land. Land that can produce something. Land that can be passed on from generation to generation. Uh, Levit- uh, Ezekiel chapter 46 for example, Ezekiel 46, you read here in verse uh, 16, it's talking again about this picture of the future. Thus says the Lord God, if the prince gives a gift of some of his inheritance to any of his sons, it shall belong to his sons. It is their possession by inheritance. So we talk about family land and, and inheritance. But if he gives a gift of some of his inheritance to one of his servants, it shall be his until the year of liberty, after which it shall return to the prince. We just have a glimpse of the economic system here that will be, well, well, land will return to the families that, that, in, that inherit it, the families that it's assigned to. But his inheritance, verse 17, shall belong to his sons. It shall become theirs. Moreover, the prince shall not take any of the people's inheritance by evicting them from their property. He shall provide an inheritance for his sons from his own property, so that none of my people may be scattered from his property. It's going to be a totally different way of life and a way of, of, of even the economy, the way an economy is established when, when land is the basis of, of prosperity. Uh, the whole topic that we can, we can study and, and analyze and think about what happens when you have a jubilee year. What happens when you have a year of release? What happens when you have a, a seventh year, uh, a, a year of, of, a, of a land Sabbath, and a year of, of release in certain ways? What, what happens when we apply God's laws of Leviticus 25 to, to an economic system? Uh, it's going to be a, a totally different world that is on beyond the suffering. On beyond the suffering. And back again to the point. When we keep the Feast of Tabernacles, when we, when we obey God's mechanism of the Feast of Tabernacles, what happens to us? We're encouraged. We're pointed forward because our attention is focused on the future, on past, giving us hope to go on past the suffering, <coughs> not only of today, but of tomorrow and the not-too-distant future. When those cities that we will establish in the future, you know, we'll have to work together. We'll have to have those bonds of brotherhood that I talked about in the first point because we'll be coaching, we'll be working with our cities together, won't we? 
Uh, what will be the name of your city? Have you ever thought about that? If you have an opportunity to, to uh, serve in a rulership position over a city, over an area, what will be the name? What will you do to build that city and build that environment? Give it some thought during these days of the Feast of Tabernacles. And we, by doing so, it, again, it focuses our attention on in the future. Imagine prosperity without greed. Imagine prosperity without obesity. You know, as a nation, we have become prosperous, and we've become, because of our prosperity, we are now to the point where we as a nation have ruined our health. And now more and more surveys and, um, and reports talk about the fact that we, I think I heard a statistic the other day that one in three children are expected to have a form of diabetes because of our diet. And that as a result of prosperity. We don't have to worry about growing our own food because it's, it's cheaper and easier to go to grocery stores and go to eat prepared foods that don't take any time to, to prepare, to, uh, to, 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 to cook, or to or prepare in any way. We can stick them in the microwave or in the oven, and, and there they are. But by and large, these prepared foods aren't good for us, and they don't fulfill our, our nutritional needs. Instead, they, they ruin our health. But we as a nation have prospered ourselves into, into poor health. What, what if, imagine prosperity. What if there could be prosperity without environmental damage? A lot of our prosperity has come at, at a price of environmental damage. And, and whether it be pollution or the, whether it be pollution of the air, of the land, whether it be destruction of, of, of literally the land itself, um, our prosperity has come with an environmental price. But what if there could be prosperity that, was based or was, was as a result, because of God's blessings and God's involvement and His instruction and His leadership working with us, through us, what if we could have prosperity without environmental damage? Isaiah chapter 11. How about education? What about a future, what about a future picture of, of education? We read here Isaiah chapter 11 that knowledge will cover the earth. Isaiah chapter 11, and we read here again where we began, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, going to focus on a couple of the scriptures that we read over uh, briefly before, but we read verse 9, for example, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How is that going to happen? How is that education going to, going to spread throughout the earth? Well, it, it, talking about it's not going to be like water that somehow it will just douse everyone and suddenly everyone will have knowledge. No, it's using the waters covering the earth as a, as a, 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 a picture that's, going to be, that's painted of how knowledge will spread. How is knowledge spread? It's spread through people, through teachers, through coaching, through instruction. You know, our system of education today that we're familiar with is not one that was established by God. Sorry to uh, spoil anything for anyone, but our educational system on the whole has failed our nation. You may say, how can that be? We have all the technology and so on. Yes, we do. But, you know, for example, just to give you one example, that our literacy rate was higher in 1776 than it is today. 200 years later, with all our advances in technology, our literacy rate as a nation was higher on the day that, the, that, the, that uh, our nation declared its independence from, from Great Britain than it is today. Our ed educational system 
is built on principles of, of humanism. It's built on principles of evolution. It's built on principles of, of democracy and capitalism. These are principles that, that, are, not, that are not solid. They're not stable. They're not, they're not founded on God's word and God's law. But we'll have an opportunity to, to coach and to build an educational system that will be based on, on God's way of doing things. How will that happen? How will that happen? It's an exciting thing to think about and to, and to ponder how education will work in the, in the millennium. And our educational system today curses our young people with a burden of debt as they leave uh, their higher education, higher education anyway, oftentimes tens of thousands of dollars of debt. What kind of, of way is that to educate our system? We're cursing our children in this nation. We're cursing our children with, with, this, with, with a debt that may follow them to the grave. What a horrible thing. This isn't part of an educational system that has anything to do with, with something that is any more than a, a system of capitalism. Education today is a business. What if you could help people to teach their children? What if you could be involved in, in rekindling a love of learning? Among, among the people of, of your land, of your city, and your, your area? What if you could rekindle the desire? And I say rekindle because it's, by and large, in our nation, there isn't a desire to train and to raise children, to, to, help, to help and coach and rekindle that, the desire for people to actually raise and work with and train their children as one of the highest, as the highest priority in terms of our physical uh, uh, activities in our life, much more uh, important than some, something we can uh, achieve in some sort of a career and a certificate we can put on a, a, a wall perhaps with a, a retirement watch or something after 40 years of working in an office somewhere and yet uh, have our children uh, go, to, go to seed without principles of living that are going to grant them success. But what if you could rekindle, what if you could be able to help people to establish within their homes, within their children, within their cities, education and a priority for education that will help the children to, to succeed? What if you could be able to help people to learn? Well, I'm going to go to the last, the last point that I want to talk about here today. We can have this vision through the Feast of Tabernacles, a picture not of suffering, that's only a step, but, uh, but of, of on beyond. The Feast of Tabernacles helps us to bridge today's world into the thinking of, of tomorrow's world. The third, the third point I want to focus on is that the Feast of Tabernacles helps us to remember that we pass on a heritage of hope. We pass on a heritage of hope to our children. I want to give this, talk about this point for a few minutes as I, as I wind up here. Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus 23. Part of the Feast of Tabernacles is, is geared toward and is directed toward passing on a heritage to, to our children. Leviticus 23. And we read... Uh, again, back in verse 42, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. Verse 43, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, I mentioned before how it reminds, it's a, it memorializes an act of history, a time in history. But it also, with that memorializing, it tells them that this should be a time when that is remembered, that is taught to the next generation, that your generations may know, that your children may know, that your children's children. Deuteronomy chapter, chapter 12. You know, when we keep the holy days, a big part of, of, of its teaching, a big part of what we're doing is passing on a heritage to the next generation. 
Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12, and we read here in verse, verse 12, and again talking about going to a place to worship and, and what the feast is about. And he says, verse 12, And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male and your female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates. And it talks about, again, then bringing, specifically I wanted to point out here, uh, that you bring your children that you do this with your children, that you include your children. This isn't some sort of a, of a, of a conference where all the adults go or just the men go. Uh, this is something for families. This is a, is a part of the mechanism that's involved here is, is teaching, including the children. You know, perhaps this may be one of the very most important things that we do today. One of the most important responsibilities that we have today is teaching our children, encouraging our children, helping to train them to be able to carry the work on through the years ahead, on through the persecution ahead, on through the trials and tribulations, and even the fleeing to a place of safety, and all the things that we, we know are going to take place in the years ahead, and the difficulties that, and, the, and the struggles that are going to be part of the years ahead. That may be one of the very most important things that we're doing today, preparing that generation as we, look at, as we look at some of the history of Israel, we look at Gideon's army, and we look at how, uh, how God took from many people, he, he went down to just a few. He went down just a few. Perhaps we've had many people. Now we're down to a few. But doesn't mean we can't pass on a tradition of, of faithfulness and dedication and a heritage of God's way to those who follow on after us. The next generation is important in terms of, of, uh, of what the future holds and our part even today in terms of that training. What acts of heroism will our children do? You can read in 2 Samuel, for example, we have records of the mighty men of David and the acts of heroism that they performed. What acts of heroism will our children perform and our young people perform in the years, of head, years ahead that will, that will ring through history? And things that we, we, we perhaps today are not even uh, aware of just because of, of be, still being in the future. So we need to think about the Feast of Tabernacles in terms of, of, of what lies on uh, ahead in terms of passing on a heritage for the next generation. Isaiah chapter 66, just to want to take that and, and, and then point it toward the millennium as we wind up. Isaiah chapter 66, we see that there will be Use the term missionary work, perhaps Isaiah chapter 66 and verse 18. We read about how he says, verse 18, It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And I will set a sign among them, and those among them who escape I will send to the nations. So there will be those that will be sent to the nations in order to, in order to explain God's word and God's way. Perhaps our children would have a part of that as you read down throughout this, this section about how the Word of God and the knowledge of God will be, will be spread throughout, throughout the, all, the whole earth. So as, we, as you, you keep the Feast of Tabernacles, as I keep the Feast of Tabernacles together, many of us are, are spread throughout the world in different sites. Some remain at home, aren't able to, to be part of the, of the feast, yet you're still part of, of the keeping of the feast in, in a broader sense, in a broader way. And those who are at home, we're, we're thinking of you, and we're concerned about you, and you're, you're part of a, of a bigger picture. Please remember that. Remember that the Feast of Tabernacles 
helps us to build bonds of brotherhood, which is going to help us to go through the years ahead. It's going to help us to go look on beyond, to get there from here, those bonds of brotherhood. Secondarily, the Feast of Tabernacles help us to focus on the future. And that focus and that hope helps to carry us on to the beyond, beyond the confusion, beyond the suffering that will be part of, of our world. And thirdly, the Feast of Tabernacles help us. They're a mechanism to help us to pass on a heritage of hope. Because our children hear these things. Our children learn about these, the, the things that, are, that we, we talk about and we think about and we focus on during these days. And they need to, because they need the encouragement. And they need to be inspired about, about the baton that can be passed on to them of doing the work, carrying on the heritage that has been passed on to you and to me. We pass that on as well to, to them. I trust and I hope that these days will be inspiring for you, encouraging for you, and, and that will be, uh, will, you'll be able to, the points that I've talked about a little bit today will be of value to you as you think about this Feast of Tabernacles.